0: Hello and welcome to the New Books Network podcast. I'm Lori Flores, your host for this episode, and I'm very happy to welcome Carrie Cordova today to talk about her book, The Heart of the Mission Latino Art and Politics in San Francisco, which was recently published by the University of Pennsylvania Press. Carrie is an associate professor of American Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Welcome, Carrie. Thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me, Lori. It's an honor. Oh, it's a it's a pleasure for me. I really loved reading your book. The cover is amazing. For those of you who want to look it up right now, it's just so colorful and beautiful. Um and as a way of beginning to get into talking about The Heart of the Mission, I just would like you to introduce yourself to our listeners and talk more about uh, your background both personally and professionally. So um, where did you grow up? Where are you from? Where did you go to school? And what has been your path to having the career that you have now?
1: Well, that's that's a lot to take in. Um, let me see if I where I can start there. First, I'll just give a, a quick shout out to the artist Juan Fuentes, who did uh, the cover uh, for the book. And I do love it. Um, it actually is not an image that I specifically talk about in the book, but I felt like it represented so much, a culmination of so many things, um, simply because it had a a calavera, um, who I I speak about, uh, Day of the Dead. um, And so playing the drums, I talk about playing the bongos in Dolores Park. I talk about uh, uh, sort of the movement for peace and there are doves on his drum. So not to go (laughs) too deeply into it, but it, it really... Uh, for me, represented a a lot of uh, diverse sort of symbols of ideas that happen in in the text. Uh, In terms of my own background, I I grew up in San Francisco. Um, I went to uh, elementary school and high school in in San Francisco. And uh, I I think uh, the book was sort of a, a... a product of my growing up in the city and witnessing a lot of different art in the city, also being the child of two parents that had migrated maybe as beats or as hippies, whatever you want to call them, to San Francisco and sort of uh, falling into uh, some diverse uh, communities. Mm -hmm. And so um, I ended up not knowing that I would write a book like this, but I did Uh, go to um, college at UCLA. I studied English literature actually uh, there. And then um, I ended up with some wonderful professors at uh, UCLA, uh, very much towards the end of my time there. Um, But they really inspired me to want to learn more about Latino art and history and literature. And I think that that was my jumping off point for trying to learn about graduate school, uh, applying to graduate school and going to uh, the University of Texas at Austin to uh, pursue a degree in American studies because my vision was to try to be uh, large and expansive in my interests. And uh, then I ended up doing uh, a lot of diverse research projects, but ultimately um, coming to start on what is now this book. And so this book has taken way too many years, um, but it it really started for me as a, as a dissertation. And it started um, largely because there was so much activity happening in San Francisco's Mission District in terms of gentrification, in terms of protest. Um, and I really wanted to write a book that could speak to a longer history of something that I felt like I had witnessed as a child, but that I couldn't quite totally put my fingers on on what that was. That's
0: so cool. um, that You majored in American Studies at UT Austin, my little sister did as well. So that's a whole connection there. Um, When you were growing up in San Francisco, what neighborhood did you grow up in?
1: Um, well, I grew up a little bit in Noe Valley. I grew up a little bit uh, <laughs> around uh, Union Street, uh, the Marina uh, Pacific Heights area, actually, and a little bit in Daly City, where i um, just on the edge of San Francisco above the Excelsior uh, neighborhood. So
0: in Noe Valley, you definitely had the opportunity to see the art in the mission, like just in your everyday walking around, I'm assuming.
1: I did. And I went to um, school uh, near Mission Street. And I think that, um, you know, my my father was uh, originally from New Mexico. Uh, He migrated to San Francisco. And um, as I mentioned, partly because I think he wanted to get away from New Mexico, um, but he, he loved art, and he also was a veteran who had been stationed in San Francisco during his time in Korea. And so San Francisco was familiar, and he could get a job in San Francisco. And so, um, you know, that, that was part of his experience, but then also part of growing up with him uh, was always going to the mission for picking up. Groceries and doing shopping and um, eating and and so I think that uh, my experience of the mission was always connected to some sort of understanding of place and going home for him.
0: And then when you were at UCLA as an undergrad, and you said during the end of your time there, some professors you know, crossed your path that got you thinking, oh, well, maybe I should pursue my interest in Latino art in graduate school? Um, What kind of things were they helping you to think about back then? So
1: I ended up, (laughs) you know, it's so, I, I, I carry this memory as a professor that um, as an undergraduate, I had absolutely no understanding of graduate school. I had no, uh, no even consideration of going to graduate school. Um, but that in my very last uh, quarter, I had two classes with Sonia saldivar Hall, uh, who now teaches at UT San Antonio, University of Texas at San Antonio, and uh, it was uh, a woman's literature class and a Latina uh, literature class. And I was blown away by the books that she taught me, which now are sort of um, uh, everywhere. I mean, she she introduced me to Gloria Anzaldúa's Borderlands, La Frontera. She introduced me uh, to... Um, uh, sort of uh, a whole host of the work by Shari Moraga and um and I just couldn't believe that I hadn't ever read these books before. <laughs> and I I I was so enthusiastic as a student um that I I I just dug in and I think she, you know, she didn't know me very well at the time, but she gave me some encouragement and responded in writing on my papers and and gradually encouraged me to consider graduate school, which was something I never had even imagined. But once she said it, I think it hit me like something I just had to do. And so her, uh, along with Professor Greg Saras, who taught American literature that same quarter, uh, it was just like a jumping off pad for me for wanting to pursue, actually to study literature. Um, and I didn't know that I would be uh, looking at the visual arts, um, but because I think of some of my family background and and so many artists in my family, um, that eventually came around to haunt me or to sort of shape the the kind of research work that I wanted to do. And
0: I, something I was wondering is that, you know, as an academic, sometimes when we, you know, are trying to write works about the community, um, that it might be hard to find our way into the trust of that community, right? And some um, people, rightly so, can be suspicious of academics as just wanting to come in, take some information, and leave. Um, so I was wondering how you kind of made your way into. The heart of the mission, so to speak. Like, how did you make your way into, you know, getting the the trust and the the history of these people who you write about in your book?
1: That that is such a a good question. Um, I think I I had to start small, and I I had I started actually probably with some people that I already had familial connections with, and so I think that 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 helped uh just in terms of um, connecting me to the community, but also um, i had I had done oral histories for the Smithsonian Institution while I was uh, finishing up my graduate work, and I think that I had realized that. Part of making a good interview or reaching out to people was showing that you had already done a lot of legwork, that you had already done a lot of research, that you already had a good understanding of things that had transpired, not just locally but specifically in relation to their own history, and that if you could show that kind of energy and um, and respect for the history in the process of reaching out to people, that that does create trust. That that is a way of establishing a certain rapport that can then allow people to share information with you. But there's no question that I was also asking people to disclose um, personal information to me about their own lives and their own history. And that some people did it simply because they really desperately wanted somebody to do this work.
0: Yeah, it's very important work. And like you said at the beginning, your aim was to, you know, create um, a backstory, a much longer backstory than perhaps our current media, you know, takes the time to collect when we're talking about 21st century gentrification, Silicon Valley, the tech industry in San Francisco. Um The picture you're painting here is one that has a really, really um, long history, deep roots. And that brings me to wanting to talk about your first chapter, which is, you know, a lot of us think of the mission as San Francisco's Latino neighborhood. But those of us who think of it that way may not know that it wasn't always the case, that there was another neighborhood in the city that was the Latin Quarter earlier in the twentieth century. So, can you talk a little bit more about um, your first chapter and
1: how you open up the book? Um, sure. I I think um, maybe I I even say a, a little bit of this in in the book is that I had no expectation of writing on the Latin Quarter. That when I first um, began doing my research, I fully anticipated that my work would be just focusing on the history and cultural production of the Mission District and the arts movement that came out of the mission, especially in relation to the civil rights movements of the late 60s and 70s and 80s. And yet uh, I also was struck by the ways in which that doing so created a narrative as if Latinos hadn't existed in the city before that. and that I constantly came up against a description of the mission district as being Latinized in uh, the 1960s. And, and so it was as if like, well, where were Latinos in the city before the mission district? Um, Certainly they existed. And then it became kind of a mission to try to identify different neighborhoods. And I have to say that there was you know, as important as the Latin Quarter, I think, was in terms of uh, representing Latinos in a larger social, um, in the larger social settings of the city, it also became really apparent that, you know, Latino neighborhoods were all over San Francisco. They were kind of colonias or, you know, sort of dispersed smaller communities throughout the city. And the reason the Latin Quarter stood out was because it also had so many nightclubs and so many uh, tiendas, stores um that also represented a kind of uh, Latino identity um, in the city. And so it became important to try to figure out what had happened there, or how did you know how did the Latin Quarter exist in San Francisco? Um, really, from the late nineteenth, century into the 1930s, 40s, and 50s, and completely disappear from most of San Francisco's narratives? How did, how did the city so easily swallow up this history of Latinos that had shopped on Broadway Street, um, that had had their photographs taken by the local photographer that had bought their Spanish books? Um, and records there on Broadway that had gone to uh, the local church on Broadway and that uh, we mostly encounter this particular neighborhood now as represented as either Chinatown or Little Italy or North Beach, um, and so completely vanishing from San Francisco historical narratives in a lot of different ways. And that's why it became so important to me to try to talk about what had happened there, um, how the community had been present, how uh, a lot of Latin music had been playing there, um, how there had been many Latino artists in the area, um, just to try to make sure that we had some sort of prior narrative and also some understanding of why displacement had such a powerful um and negative history for Latinos in the history of San Francisco. And that
0: displacement um happened when when does it start kind of because this Latin Quarter it's not just filled with one group of Latinos, you know, heavily Mexican or heavily um Puerto Rican, it's it's always been a mix, right? So did that displacement process happen at different points for different nationalities? Or was there a point in the 20th century where you would say this starts to become, you know, a moment in which the mission does become the place that a lot of Latinos are having to move to? Um, I would
1: say uh, one, it's, it's actually really hard to describe exactly when, um, when the displacement is, occurring my my best understanding uh, is that uh, it was also tied to increasing property values in relation to North Beach uh, and especially in relation to the kind of uh, beat migration that happened during the 1950s and so um, if you if you consider that San Francisco became a kind of point of migration for uh, anyone interested in the counterculture in the 1950s and 60s, that um, the Beat Movement actually attained a kind of national visibility on television, even with like shows about Dobie Gillis, and uh, that in in those sort of popular culture ways, San Francisco emerged as as a space to uh, to join the counterculture. And that North Beach, in particular, uh, especially um, through the work of, I mean, Lawrence Ferlinghetti setting up uh, City Lights Books, but all these different coffee houses and cafes that then generated this kind of youthful counterculture migration, specifically to the area that had been the Latin Quarter, and so that I think that that was that was one factor, and I think that. Um, it wasn't a, a single sort of set of um, set of social changes in the city, but that as uh, as prices also rental prices were were actually dropping in San Francisco's Mission District, um, in part because the area was increasingly less desirable. Um, that uh, there was also a, a movement towards that neighborhood. Yeah, so kind of overlapping trends
0: happening there. Exactly. And that's kind of the subject of um, the chapter c- that comes after that about Latinos and the beat movement and 1950s counterculture, that at the same time that beat migration is bringing new people into North Beach and pushing some Latinos out, there are some Latinos, Latino artists whose lives and whose careers are within that history of the movement, but we just don't often hear about them.
1: Yeah, that, that became a, um, probably one of the more, um, personal narratives to try to, uh, document actually, just because, uh, it, 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 it was so familiar. It was, um, familiar to me in terms of my father's own migration to San Francisco. And, um, I think, uh, I, I decided to focus on three male artists in part because it was incredibly difficult to find um, a, a female artist that I could also try to um, discuss in this conversation uh, about uh, beat artists or um, it, it became a, a focus on Luis Cervantes, Ernie Palomino and Jose Lerma um, and their experience trying to work at the California School of Fine Arts, as it was then known, and then became the San Francisco Arts Institute, um, and uh, trying to understand the ways in which they participated in this avant-garde culture. They were, you know, um, Jose Larma was, you know, at the cafe when Allen Ginsberg read his famous Howell poem, um, mm-hmm. and you know they were they were there and they were present, and yet. Terms of when you look at um, the how the history of the Beats has been portrayed, it's often been in a very literally black and white perspective. And trying to think about where did Latinos belong in this history of the counterculture, uh, in which it's sometimes even derived from the sort of bohemian nature of uh, Latin nightclubs and cafes, yeah. and yet they don't necessarily register as artists and participants. Mm-hmm. And I guess the, you know, um, I guess to to fully disclose, part of the reason why the chapter was so personal was because I grew up knowing Jose Lerma. And so he was uh, somebody that was very important to me uh, during my entire growing up life and just trying to place him in that context and also understand a sort of earlier and older generation of Latino artists that didn't necessarily uh, connect in some of the ways in which we've understood uh, the Chicano movement or Latino arts movement that emerges um, in a far more uh, politically sensitized way uh, in the late uh, 60s.
0: Mm -hmm. And one of the things when we're talking about the Chicano movement or Latino history or Latino art is that perhaps a lot of people expect all of these artists to kind of be on the same page, to be in solidarity with each other, to be somewhat homogenous in a way we don't expect white artists, for instance, you know, to be. And so your third chapter really takes apart people's different views on how they identified as an artist, but also in relation to their um, ethnic identity, political identity. So your third chapter talks about the Chicano movement of the 60s and how different artists were interacting with the movement or responding to that movement or not wanting to participate in that movement through their art. Can you um, briefly describe for us maybe the different factions or or maybe use some examples of different artists who felt um, very distinctly
1: one way or other about the movement? Sure. I think um, one of the things that was fascinating about uh, digging into some of this history was seeing um, some of the ways in which it it didn't fit with some of the other histories that I have encountered, like looking at um, Chicano art in Los Angeles or even um, in Austin, Texas, uh, and thinking about the importance of abstract art in San Francisco, the ways in which uh, the California School of Fine Arts had had a a profound influence in terms of uh, shaping an appreciation, a larger sort of pervasive appreciation for abstract art in San Francisco. And, and then thinking about the ways in which abstract art is not typically connected with uh, Chicano or Latino arts movements, the ways in which abstract art was often looked at as maybe being uh, colonized, right? So that you weren't actually speaking to the political needs of, of the movements. And yet, um, I think what became sort of apparent to me was that a lot of the arts organizing that started to emerge in the late 1960s, even when it was abstract, often still had very uh, political contexts. And so you can see um, the ways in which Casa Hispana, one of the first Latino arts movement art organizations in San Francisco, had. Um, it joined uh, many, di- many people from diverse Latin American countries sort of joined this organization. Um, and then they did a number of uh, plays um, by say uh, Lorca or Casona um, who are Spanish. And so that um, in some ways represented some sort of uh, potentially uh, colonialist <laughs> um, orientation of the organization, or or a deep appreciation for Spanish culture, um, versus say when some other organizations uh, started up, I think that they were um, maybe looking much more uh, Chicano oriented or Mexican American oriented, and maybe Galeria de la Raza would fit into that conversation. And so, uh, it wasn't uh, just an us versus them because many of the the artists were sort of moving around in these diverse groups. But you could also see the ways in which the artists were struggling with how to be an artist, how to do creative work, and still also participate in a political culture that was becoming increasingly vocal and um, concerned about issues of social inequalities in relation to Latinos in the city and in the nation and transnationally.
0: Mm -hmm. And this uh, vocality is also taking place at universities, right? With students. This is the 50th anniversary of
1: the third world strike at San Francisco State, right? Exactly. So, um, yeah, of course, you're pointing to the the next chapter that I developed, which really became trying to talk about not just the the important history of the third world strike, just in terms of shaping the creation of ethnic studies across the country, um, but the ways in which The experience of a number of young people who participated in the Third World Strike in 1968 um, going out on strike at San Francisco State University because they were demanding some representation of uh, Third World cultures in the curriculum and some sort of understanding of the ways in which uh, the Western orientation of the curriculum uh, needed to dismantle some of those uh, uh, very colonialist perspectives. And so um, I I took the opportunity um, to uh, link uh, Yolanda Lopez, Juan Fuentes and Rupert Garcia into a conversation about the impact of that event on their work, on their lives, on their outlook, on their um, on sort of the trajectory that they then followed in their, in their work. And for me, it, it became also uh, important to just uh, acknowledge this event as, as really long lasting mm-hmm. and profound in Latino studies and Chicano studies in a larger sense.
0: Yeah. Well, we're definitely talking about it this year, you know, with all these anniversaries, um, not only in San Francisco, but you mentioned Mexico city and Paris and um, these other places where young people are coming into confrontation um, with, with the police or with other bodies of authority and not just young people, but ethnic communities as well. Right. Yeah. Um, The, I found it very interesting how you often used uh, three artists, like you mentioned, linking up three artists um, to kind of open up a chapter. Is there a reason why you kind of use that structure often in the book, or what did that choice allow you to accomplish in the narrative you wanted to tell? <laughs> I
1: you, you know Lori, you've you've outed me. <laughs> that is definitely that is definitely a structure that I um to follow, though I didn't intentionally mean to do it 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 just became. Uh, a way of opening up a larger conversation. And they weren't the only artists that I actually um, gave voice to in those chapters, but it became um, like, you know, one was not enough and two created a kind of binary. And with three, you could really sort of, um, I don't know, put together a, a deeper comparative analysis and really sort of, Uh, cross these lives together in ways that, uh, you know, made everything that much more complicated because as, as you already pointed out um, as, as much as these um, these people were experiencing these events simultaneously, they, they never had the same experience. And, And so it became also really important to, um, I don't know, disinter some stereotypical expectations of what people might anticipate was the experience. And also to to show that, you know, as much as there was sort of sometimes coherence and participation, there were definitely diverse ways of thinking about what should be done at the time or how people should do art or how people should think about um, changing the world. <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: Well for me I really appreciated it because it's not only a structure that as a writer but also as a reader you can hold on to but it also introduced me to a lot of artists I did not know anything about. So for instance in in the third world strike chapter I had heard of Yolanda Lopez and been exposed to her work but it was so nice to read about her alongside some artists I knew less about. Um so I appreciated like the prismatic kind of way in which you you tackle each of these. Um, subjects of your chapters through three people. I
1: liked it. <laughs> Thank you. I mean, for, for me, it also just became um, sort of evidence. Um, I, I don't know. It, I, I didn't, I mean, I I had very long interviews with Yolanda Lopez and Juan Fuentes, and I used um, I, more in uh, Archives of American Art interview with Rupert Garcia, but it was for me, as a researcher and reading their their lives, it became both surprising and fascinating how meaningful the third world strike was in their lives. and And so it wasn't as if I sort of specifically set out and said, "I'm going to find these artists and put them into the third world strike." It was more that their experiences to me had registered such a need to record that event. Mm-hmm.
0: Right. Yeah. It's just a prime example of letting your sources speak to you rather than trying to fit them into a place you think they should be. Um, which is one of the first kind of things I tell my, my own grad students in trying to write history is let your sources, you know, be loud enough and listen to them. So I, I think that, um, you did that really well. Uh, when it comes to the the chapter that comes after that, where you start getting us into the 1970s, um, you also begin to talk more about murals, and you know that's one of the the big kind of handles I have on the Mission District, and something I always tell people to go see if they've never been to San Francisco before is Balmy Alley or Clarion Alley, or these places where you just find incredible murals. Um, Definitely not the only places in the city where you can find Latino art on that scale. But murals and the mission, you know, I just can't extricate them, you know, from each other in my own mind. So, in writing that chapter, that's also where you bring in women um, again and sort of talk about how, you know, historically they had often been left out of these um, artistic movements. So, how through the 70s and through murals were women able to have a, a larger Role and presence in the Latino art landscape.
1: Yeah, I, there's there's so much going on in what you've just pointed out. So I just, um, you know, it, it is it is funny, um, and and just to comment on it, and to say that that sometimes, um, you know, I've I've been introduced to somebody who works on art in the mission, and the immediate presumption is, well, I must just work on murals right <laughs> because what else what else could there be and and so there is such a preponderant understanding of the mission district as you know if if there's art then it's going to be about the murals and and so sometimes that's actually frustrating for me as as an author to want to show the diversity of artistic genres that have been so prolific in this neighborhood um, and to try to um, make sure that as as powerful as the murals are and as visually accessible, right, out in the public, out in the city center as they are, um, it, it certainly hasn't been the only um, artistic genre that has shaped the neighborhood. Now, having said that, Um, they're profound. I mean, they're, they're, the, the murals are everywhere today, even. And so um, for, for one, it, it just became important to try to describe, like, what were the origins of these murals that we see today? And so looking, especially at the late 1960s and 70s moment, and, and then also not turning my book into a conversation only about murals. And how to do that? How to talk about um, the importance of murals without overwhelming everything else? And so, I ended up focusing on two murals that were created in 1974, and trying to um, put together their histories, their um, origins, and of course, you know, uh, noting that one mural was created by a, a group of men. Um, who were modeling their work on Los tres grandes, the the sort of major male Mexican muralists, um such as Diego Rivera, and then looking at a mural that was created by a group of women that became known as las mujeres muralistas. Um, and and trying to also talk about the gender politics that had made these women, create work separately from the men and i think that yes there was profound sexism in terms of incorporating women into these arts movements i i still um sort of marvel at you know the you know at least 25 men have connected themselves in terms of the history and origins of galleria de la raza but where were the women in that story? Or, you know, where were the Chicanas and Latinas that were going to the San Francisco Art Institute and also trying to participate? And so, um, actually, a couple of them were part of Las Mujeres Moralistas. Patricia Rodriguez and Graciela Carrillo both attended the San Francisco Art Institute. Um, perhaps there were others, um, if my memory will forgive me. Um, But just to try to recognize the ways that women were also trying to make inroads. And it was even harder, right, Um, uh, not to be taken seriously by their peers. And so it became really important for women to actually create their own opportunities. And so um, a couple of things also facilitated the creation of murals. Uh, one was a kind of community sponsorship of murals that um, there were sort of organizations like Galleria de la Raza that actually started to um, sponsor uh, the creation of murals, but also um, the creation of something called CETA, uh which uh, became uh, a, a way of, um, it was, uh, gosh, the Comprehensive Employment Training Act. Forgive me if I'm getting the acronym um, not exactly right, Uh, but uh, a couple of uh, San Francisco folks had the bright idea of making sure that some of those funds could be used to employ artists. And so actually some murals started getting uh, funding in a way that was envisioned to be like the WPA, Uh, because of course, in the 1970s, we were also going through an economic downturn. And so the creation of jobs became uh, an important uh, sort of local, state, and federal move. And so all of these things were contributing. Um, And I think uh, Patricia Rodriguez was very kind in her sort of references to the men, where she said something to the effect of, well, they, you know, it's not that they didn't Like us, they just didn't want us there. I'm not not quite getting her words right, but I think um, for me that chapter was also just really important to try to navigate some of the gender politics that had been shaping all of this community organizing.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I it definitely makes you know you're totally right in what you say about murals not being the only way we understand Latino artistic production in The Mission, because this book, it talks about music, it talks about poetry, it talks about, especially in the next couple of chapters, um, which I'd like to talk about in tandem with each other, not because I think, you know, they deserve less attention on their own, but because I think they're so strong together, which is um, your chapters on Nicaragua and El Salvador, and the people who are dialoguing with the political situation In those countries in the 1970s and the 1980s, we have still so little on Central American history. And San Francisco stands out to me as just like a very Central American city. Um, And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how, um, how your experience was in crafting these two chapters together, because they are quite heavy and dense, full of great material. And so how
1: did you come across all of that? Well, um yeah the, the, and and such big topics, I mean, I think um, some of that was just a, a product of coming of age in San Francisco and um, and being very aware of uh, Central American communities in the city and um, especially I mean as as we look towards uh, a, ladder, a the latter chapter too, um, the the Central American diaspora, you know, increased dramatically over the nineteen eighties in relation to U.S. intervention in Central America, and that was deeply visible growing up in San Francisco and in ways that are um, that. W- were um, upsetting because, of course, uh, people were being displaced because of acts of violence um, that were being supported by the United States. And so um, I think witnessing that, it also became important to try to represent uh, Nicaraguans and Salvadorans in San Francisco, their history, um, their experiences, and You know, Nicaragua was kind of this uplifting story in some ways because you saw the ways in which so many poets, artists, uh, writers, uh, uh, filmmakers uh, gathered together to support a kind of um, radical revolution in Nicaragua. Um, And I I would point to the ways in which there was definitely a kind of utopianism in relation to that. And the ways in which Nicaragua or um, changing um, Nicaragua from such a, um, a, a very uh, dictatorial and abusive uh, human rights situation to something that could be um, a positive place uh, became, I think, kind of a wish fulfillment, not just for Nicaragua, but for folks in the mission district who were also uh, struggling economically, that, you know, if things could change in Nicaragua, then maybe things could change in the Mission District, too. And so that became something that I wanted to write about. Um, and, you know, I the poets in particular, Nina Serrano especially, Alejandro Murguia, uh, Roberto Vargas, uh, they were very vocal, very active. In terms of expressing some of those uh, concerns and desires, both for the mission district and for Nicaragua, and there was such a sort of celebration or sense of celebration when um, Nicaragua's revolution took place in 1979. And of course, now we have hindsight and see the ways in which a lot of some a lot of those very utopian visions got co opted, usurped. And, um, and there was a different kind of um, dismantling of the revolution that took place during the 1980s, um, also U.S.-sponsored. And at the same time, it became very important to prevent any kind of revolutionary activity throughout Central America for the United States. And so the pressure on El Salvador at that time was so profound. And then it became important to write about, well, what, what were the experiences of Salvadoran artists in San Francisco? and um, and so uh, i I had the good fortune of sort of putting together a, a couple of interviews. Um, and it became important to not just create a a stereotype of Salvadoran migration that I think has been um, frequent. And that is that you know all all Salvadoran migrants have come uh, as a product of violence, and at the same time, it was hard to avoid the narratives of violence that also have shaped those migrations. And so, I, I used um, the stories of Marti Van Galindo, um, Gilberto Osorio, Romeo Gilberto Osorio, and Victor Cartagena. To talk about them generationally, and to talk about Osorio coming in the 1970s, before um, the Salvadoran war was in full force, but still actually quite um, challenging, and then talking about Marte van Galindo coming in the 80s, and talking about Cartagena coming in the um, sort of in a, in a later period, and all of them. Um, as much as their migration stories shaped them coming to San Francisco also gave them opportunities to become full-fledged artists in some ways. And that they um, sort of were allowed to expand on their, uh, their sense of creativity. And um, I don't know the way in which like the, the dream it was not exactly a dream to come to the United States, but in some ways they got to, to become artists in the United States, maybe in ways that wouldn't quite have been as available um, in El Salvador at the time.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. This migration of ability and identity and, and what results from movement is definitely a, a theme in your book. And um, I wanted to say about the last chapter that I think it's it the structure of it is quite brilliant in my opinion, just the way that you you end on talking about um the day of the dead, the de los muertos and um it offers you an entree, you know not just the holiday which you know, is nowadays definitely oversimplified at times. It's conflated with Halloween. Like maybe a lot of people still don't um, understand the full complexity of of that day and what it means in Latin America and now to Latinos in the U.S. But you use it as a way to talk about how the Latino artistic community of San Francisco has dealt with the topic of death in general, um, because this is not only a city in which we are talking about. Um, migrants coming from places characterized by violence, political, social, um, and physical, but it's also a place where farm worker communities have migrated and and endured um, death and suffering by pesticides. Or it's San Francisco is a city that underwent um, a lot of suffering in the AIDS crisis, Um, gang violence, all of these different um, forms of death. And I just thought it was such a, it's a brilliant way to be able to talk about a lot of things going on in the neighborhood, um, through beginning to talk about that holiday. How did you come up with that idea to do that?
1: <laughs> um, well, uh, thank you for, for those very kind words. And I think, um, I always knew that I was going to be writing something about, uh, Day of the Dead when I took on this project, in part because it had been so much my own personal experience of participating in San Francisco Latino communities. I mean, from uh, from a very early age, my um, father had hosted, um, you know, Dia de los Muertos ceremonial sort of party gatherings Oh, really? At your house? Yes, at our our house. And so actually, um, one of the artists, Jose Lerma, who, um, you know, I don't talk about so much in this chapter, but he and another artist, Ellen Kernigan, used to come to our house because my dad had a big basement. And so we could actually host all of the artists coming over and they would set up the altar. And, you know, this was in 74, 75, 76. You know, I knew it was somewhat unusual because a lot of the kids in my school weren't doing this, (laughs) and so, um, and and yet I loved it, and and I thought that it was, you know, so wonderful. And yet I also knew that, as much as my father participated, it wasn't necessarily um, like his family didn't necessarily celebrate um, Dia de los Muertos. Coming from Albuquerque, New Mexico. And yet, somehow, it was this kind of confluence of different Latino cultures coming together, and so I think that experience definitely shaped my um, my my interest in in the event. But then also uh, the um, experience of living in San Francisco in the nineteen eighties and um it and the ways in which uh, the nature of the event changed um, because the the pervasive uh, violence, whether it was um, death by AIDS or um, death in relation to violence in El Salvador and Central America more generally, um, it, it was just so profound. And what was all the more striking was the ways in which as the as the event grew more popular, the art changed um, and the art changed in a lot of different ways and I think um, uh, artists also became aware of the ways in which mourning um, had a you know could be a very political enterprise the ways in which when you um, when you mourn for the dead, when you express your um grievances for how people have died, for the violence that has been enacted on people's lives, that that becomes a really important expression of protest. And so that was something that I wanted to capture in ways in which I think a lot of people, many people have written on Dia de los Muertos. But for me, it became really important to talk about the the political sort of uh, expressions of protest that also started to shape the event.
0: Yeah, I think it's just such a great final chapter to end on before your epilogue um, in which you talk about, you know, very current gentrification battles um, precipitated by the technology industry having a much bigger presence in San Francisco Um, in the past couple of decades. Um, I wanted to ask you a final question about, you know, something that happened very recently is that 24th Street became or succeeded in becoming named as a cultural district, right? Or a zone of cultural preservation. Yeah. So what do you think about um, the potential that that might have to either delay or stop um, gentrification that might be eliminating or changing a lot of the artistic energy and latinidad of the mission district, do you think it has the potential to to keep things as they are, or do you think these changes are going
1: to happen no matter what? I think a lot of changes have already happened um, i think uh, I, th- I think what those I I do think it's important to try to take steps towards preservation. I do think that there um, um, that there are many very good uh, people that are working on the ground to try to uh, intervene in what has become, you know, such an omnivorous um, uh, all consuming gentrification process. And so I'm I'm admiring of that work. I think a lot of that work has focused, especially on protecting um, institutions and businesses, and so, um, and I think that's that's good. I mean, I, I want to see uh, Brava continue. I want to see Galleria de la Raza continue. I want to see the Mission Cultural Center continue. Um, I want to see some of the little tienditas be able to uh, continue, and at the same time, I think that. Uh, It's 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 almost been impossible to uh, prevent some of the prevailing uh, real estate speculation that has been displacing residents, right? People that are living in homes that are not protected as historical and that are really um, going to either have been forced to move or are going to be forced to move. Or are trying desperately to hold on to um, uh, apartments that they've, you know, um, gathered some sort of uh, rental protection on, uh, and yet the 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 accommodations for low income people have just not been enough, and. And I don't place that only on San Francisco. I mean, I think that that, um, I think, is is a national phenomenon that I can see where I'm, you know, where I keep my own residence in Austin, Texas, Uh, that without any kind of national regulatory structures to actually make sure that people have affordable housing and jobs uh that that is in some ways uh it it doesn't look good
0: Mm -hmm. and that's frustrating yeah yes absolutely yeah and you're right happening in cities all over the nation um this is you know your book i kind of see it as like a love letter to the mission and to san francisco and um, I was wondering uh, if you were doing any public events or community events um, regarding your book uh, in the upcoming months. It might take a few weeks for this podcast um, to air, but later on in the year, are you excited about doing anything in particular, presenting it anywhere?
1: Well, I, I have to say, I just I just gave a talk at the California Historical um, Society and was really rewarding because I think it's uh, launched some some new research for me um, that uh, I don't actually have any upcoming events that I would, you know, like encourage people right now. But I, I think that uh, one of the things that's uh, difficult about doing work like this is uh, that I, you know, well, I, I got the book out, so I must be done with San Francisco, so I should move. To Do something else, and I find myself still coming back to san francisco and so I think I'm finally letting myself off the hook there a little bit and I'll just allowing myself to continue to write my love letters to San Francisco, if you will and, um and and you know even working on murals again <laughs> and so you know i I think that uh you know whatever. I'm going to keep working on is uh, there's I'm, I'm probably not going to be able to let go of some of this material. I'm just going to have to keep allowing myself to, to dig in and somehow figure out a way to represent it. Yeah. Keep on letting the
0: creative. <laughs> I'm all for that. Yeah. I can't wait to see what happens next. And, um, Your information, we will have it on our blog post, which people can check out on the New Books Network. But, Carrie, I want to thank you so much for talking with me about uh, your book and joining me on this podcast today.
1: Thank you so much, Lori. I really um, respect your work, and I'm just very happy to have had this
0: chance to talk with you. So glad we talked. Thank you all for tuning in to the New Books Network. I'm Lori Flores, your host for this episode, and we've just heard from Carrie Cordova about her book, The Heart of the Mission. Latino Art and Politics in San Francisco, published by the University of Pennsylvania Press. I invite you all to like and follow our New Books Network social media pages on Twitter and on Facebook. Thank you for listening.